And welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. If you need a Bible, Greg is up and he has Bibles in his hands. Just raise your hand and he'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anyone need a Bible? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to give you a heads up. We're going to go through chapter 3 and verse 9 of chapter 4. So when we finish chapter 3 and I start chapter 4, don't go, oh no. <laughs> How long are we going to be here tonight? We're just going to go to verse 9 of chapter 4, okay? Um, there's just a lot there at the end of chapter 4, and so I wanted to um, save it for next time. I wanted to give a quick update before we get into the Word. Uh, I mentioned last week we were looking at a building that we might be purchasing, and uh, it's been going back and forth, and it looks like they may already have someone they're wanting to lease it to. And so, um, you know, that's okay if the door shuts and, hey, that's great. I don't want to be any place where God doesn't want us to be. And so, um, but I know God, God has something for us. And so we just want to pray and just continue to seek the Lord. And so, um, I mean, things could turn around if the Lord wants us to be in there. But at this point, it looks like uh, they got someone else that they want to lease the building instead of uh, sell it. And so uh, with that, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time to be together, Lord, this time that you've given to us that we could, oh Lord, just breathe out a sigh of relief from being out in this world and and being able to come into this place and uh, to worship you freely, Lord, and then to be able to get into your word, knowing, Lord, that you're going to speak to our hearts tonight through your word. We thank you for this time. We pray your blessing upon it, Lord. I pray your blessing upon it. Gabe, as he shares with the youth downstairs, with the teachers that are teaching downstairs, bless them, speak through them, and uh, touch all the kids that are down there, Lord. We thank you for this time tonight. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we know that God chose Nehemiah for a specific task. Once Nehemiah was aware what God was calling him to do, first thing he did, he prayed. Now, to the point where the burden was so great that his countenance was changed before his heathen boss, to the point where King Artaxerxes, if you remember, said to Nehemiah, Why are you so sad? Remember Nehemiah's response? He just spilled his guts in chapter 2, verse 3. May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city of the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? You know, just, just blurting it all out. And I mean, this is the king he's talking to. But man, his heart was so grieved at what he knew, that the walls were down, that, that that was in disarray. But understand, God's hand was on Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah leave, blessed him, not only saying you can go, but gave him, you know, papers to get him through, uh, you know, customs, so to speak. And, and also gave him, a, a, you know, a permission to, for lumber to build him a home there as well. And so he was blessed to go do what God was calling him to do. So we could say that chapter 1 was Nehemiah, he had a vision. Chapter 2 was Nehemiah's plan. We saw Nehemiah getting there to Jerusalem and going out, inspecting the wall. You know, he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. He just went out and in his mind, you know, he formed for formatted, you know, came up with a plan. Uh, now in chapter 3, we see the plan unfolding. Now what was Nehemiah's plan? What was his vision? Well, to enlist the people of God, the Jews, to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Number one. Number two, to provide security on the inside, a separation on the outside. Remember the walls were there to say, hey, you know what, this is, this is separate from the outside of the, of the world. 
Number three, to make it possible to practice God's word and fulfill God's destiny for Israel. Now, I think we could take those same three things and apply them to the church. The vision to enlist the people of God to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Number two, to provide security on the inside, a separation from the outside. That is, we're in the world, but not of the world. And number three, to make it possible to practice God's word and fulfill God's destiny for the church to reach the loss of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way of, of looking at it is that as a church, we have a threefold vision, upward, inward, and outward. Upward in the worship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Inward to build up and encourage the church through, through the verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then outward to persuade men and women to repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Upward, inward, outward is, is our wall that we're building as a church. And everybody has a part to play. And that's what we see in chapter 3. We see a list of names, very long list of names that are, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this evening. But we also see groups of, of people involved in the building of the wall. James Boyce writes in his commentary concerning chapter 3, Can anything be more uninteresting than a list of names, particularly names most of us can hardly pronounce? However, what appears to be a boring list of names, if you examine them closely, you see that it's a list of those in the community of all joined together to accomplish one goal, and that is of rebuilding the wall, and simultaneously on all parts of the city, a wall that was divided into about 40 or 41 different sections. And so what this chapter shows us is there is an entire workforce dedicated and enthusiastic about the work that God has called them to do. 38 individual workers are named in this chapter, and 42 different groups are identified. And I might add there's even more that Nehemiah didn't uh, name whose labors were important, but each did their job, what they were assigned to do, and, and they got the job done. Evangelist D.L. Moody once said, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They have the idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get in, into a nicely cushioned pew, and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their minds. Now, I think Ephesians chapter 3 is really, uh, you can sum up, uh, rather in Ephesians chapter 4, you can really sum up chapter 3 of Nehemiah with Paul's words to, to the church there in Ephesus. You can turn there if you want, but let me read Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16. Paul says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, it goes on to say that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth and love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. See, God is called me as a pastor to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So when I do what God has called me to do, and you do what God has called you to do, then we see results. We see God moving and working in our lives to build His church and uh, for His glory. Now, you know, the gift that I have here behind the pulpit is not any greater gift that God has, has called you to do. Maybe more responsibility, but it's still in God's eyes the task that He's equipped me for. So then as I help others to discover their and develop their own gifts, all of us accomplish more for the Lord. And that's what we see here. We see in, in, in Nehemiah 
these, these, these families working together to, to get the work done. I thought it was funny while I was reading through this chapter that we can, we can replace the names of the, from, from the people that are written there with people in our church. For example, look at verse 3. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beam, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Now we can say, well, the fish gate was built by the sons of Gishes, you know, Bryson and Tyler, you know, that they uh, laid the beam, set up the stores, and installed the boat, bolts and bars. Or verse 6, the old city gate was repaired by Jehoiada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam. We can say, well, the old city gate was prepared by Aiden, son of Kevin and Ginger Presley, you know. It's the same type of thing. Look at verse 10. Next, Jediah, son of Harumpha, <laughs> repaired the walls across from his own house, and next him was Hatasa, son of Hashbada, whatever. <laughs> we could say, you know, so next Matthew, son of Humphrey, repaired the wall across from his own house, and next Benjamin, son of Stowe. You know, I mean, that's what you got here. And I make the comparison because it really brings out Paul's words again in Ephesians that every part does its share in the body of Christ, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And as you look at the various people mentioned in Nehemiah 3, you'll find yourself saying, man, this is the church today. This is how God wants to build His church. Circumstances change, but human nature remains pretty much the same. And we see that in this chapter that God uses all kinds of people. And now the, the people in Nehemiah's time finished this difficult task because they obeyed the same leader, they kept their eyes on the same goal, and they worked together for the glory of God. And neither outside enemies from the outside the, the city or the difficulties inside the city distracted them from their God-given task. Now think about what Nehemiah was up against. No one person by themselves could build an entire mile or two mile stretch of wall. Nobody could. But when the task was divided into 40 to 41 manageable sections and divided into families to do the work, it became a realistic, achievable goal. And we see that, uh, and what we see in chapter 3 is that number one, the people were willing to work, and number two, they became involved and immediately started doing something. And then Nehemiah, through the wisdom of God that God gave him, set each of them to work building whatever part of the wall was nearest to each of their own houses, so they were personally involved in the work. I mean, this whole chapter is, is devoted to the dividing of the task and separate assignments and rebuilding of the walls. Now, again, instead of me rebutchering the names and reading each verse in, in chapter 3, what I want to do is point out each of the gates that people were assigned to or that they came across to them in, in rebuilding this wall and the significance of this or, or what we can take from it. Here's a picture that I, I wanted Jacob to get up of the wall and the gates associated with the wall. So he, he got it all up there. Yay, finally, so it's up there. So this works. This wouldn't have worked if we didn't have that map. So, Well, it would work, but it wouldn't be as good as this. So let me give you an example. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. Then Eliashib, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. Now you look at the sheep gate up at the right-hand corner there. That's where they start, verse 1. This is the gate in which the sheep was, were brought into the city to be sacrificed at the altar. Now, the sheep gate, of course, uh, signifies what? The Lamb of God, whose blood was shed on the cross for us. That's always the starting place in our lives, the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us. Then we move to the fish gate. Look at verse 3. Also the sons of Hasassaniah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and hung its swords with its bolts and bars. Now, 
You think of the word fish gate, what does that make you think of? Well, I think of Mark chapter 1 verse 17, what Jesus said. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And we can look at this, as this suggests the witness of a Christian. Let me ask you this, has that gate broken down in your life? Has the wall around the fish gate crumbled? You know, if, if you can never say a word for Christ, if there's no witnessing going on in your life, then perhaps that wall is broken and the fish, nate, fish gate needs to be repaired. Next is the Jeshana gate, or what your Bible may say is called the old gate in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Moreover, Jehoi, Jehoi, Jehoiada, I'm having a hard name with names tonight, and I've even gotten to the hard ones, the son of Paseah and Meshulam, the son of that guy, repaired the old gate, they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. So what does this old gate symbolize? Well, it's for old people. It's got grab bars and ramps. No, no, I'm kidding. It's a joke, okay? I, I suggest that the old gate represents truth, the faithful, inerrant truth of God's Word. I think in many lives, Christian lives, this gate is broken down. They're no longer trusting in the truth of God's Word. They're no longer relying on the truth. See, truth is always old, and it's upon old things that everything new must rest. We are living in days, I think, where, where, where the old truth is being forsaken. Our society today, people are quickly throwing away objective truth for subjective truth. Objective truth is clear cut. This is what it is. Subjective truth depends, well, on your own ideas and opinions. Truth can be whatever you want it to be. You know, it can be different for me, different for you. Listen, God's truth, God's word never changes. If that wall is broken down in your life, if that, if that gate is damaged, then get back to the Word of God. Take God at His Word. Judge everything you hear and read by with what the Word of God says. God's Word is true. The story I read about a man who one day went to visit an old musician friend of his. He knocked on the musician's door and said, What's the good word for today? Well, the old musician didn't say a word. He turned around and went back across the room to where a tuning fork was hanging he took a hammer and struck the tuning fork so that the note resounded throughout the whole room. Then the musician said, that, my friend, is A. It was A yesterday, it was A 5,000 years ago, and it will be A 5,000 years from now. Well, then he added, the tenor across the hall sings off-key. The soprano upstairs is flat on her high notes, and the piano in the next room is out of tune. He struck the, the tuning fork again and said, that is an A, and that, my friend, is a good word today. You see, that's the truth. Truth is always the same. It never changes. We need to rebuild the old gates of truth. Well, the next gate is the valley gate in verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Danoah repaired the valley gate. And I think you can kind of immediately see what this gate suggests. It's, it's a valley, I think, of humility. It's a place of lowliness of mind, of humbleness of heart. God has, has said in every page of Scripture that, that He's against the pride of men. He looks for the lowly. He looks for the humble, the contrite, and those who have learned that they are not, you know, indispensable. They've learned that, that to have a low opinion of themselves, but a high opinion of their God. It's that attitude that God seeks that this valley gate often needs to be repaired. And next we come to our favorite, <laughs> the refuse gate. <laughs> Look at verse 14. Okay, here we go. Machajah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hasarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. 
Chili would like to be the guy that has that job. <laughs> you know, I'll take care of the outhouse, all right? Don't worry about me, man. But now, obviously, the refuse gate, obviously, is the Dun Gate on our map. The Dun Gate was where the refuse was carried out of the city. And I think we can say, man, that's the place of turning from the filthiness of sin. We needed to go through the Dungate to admit our failures and confess our sin and turn from them and leave them behind. We're told in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, turn from the, the, from the dung of sin, so to speak, and, and, and then refreshing comes from the Lord. That brings us to the fountain gate. Look at verse 15. Shalom, the son of... Paul Jose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. The fountain gate. That immediately, to me, reminds me of the words of Jesus to the woman at the well in John 4.14. When Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him the fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Speak to the Holy Spirit, which is the river of life in us, the flowing spirit of God in our lives to enable us to obey his will and to obey his word. Now that gate is followed by verse 26. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. Now we know that Nixon had something to do with this gate, some sort of break-in and cover-up, because it's a water gate. But we can take this water gate a little deeper. We can dive into it a little further and see what the water is a symbol of. And obviously the water is a symbol of the word of God. We're to be washed in the water of the word, the Bible says. Now what's interesting about this water gate is that it did not need to be repaired. Evidently it was the only part of the wall that was still standing. You know, it, it, it made mention that here that people made repairs up to the water gate, but not to the water gate itself. Again, pointing to the fact that you can always go back to the standing upon the truth of God's Word. God's Word never breaks down. It doesn't need to be repaired. It simply needs to be re-inhabited. It needs to be trusted. Well, next we come to verse 26, and we read of the horse gate. Verse 26, Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Now, I, I think about that. I, I, I think of, uh, speaking of Jesus, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, that says, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I think the horse gate could speak of, of the, the rapture of the church, the return of Jesus Christ. And then that leads to verse 29, and our next gate on our map is the east gate. Look at verse 29. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. So the east gate, Face the rising sun. It's, it's the gate of hope. Listen to what Ray Stebbin writes about the East Gate. He says, It is the gate of anticipation of what is yet to come when all the trials of life and all the struggles of earth will end and the glorious new sun will rise on the new day of God. He goes on to say, This gate needs to be rebuilt in many of us who fall under the pessimistic spirit of this age and are crushed by the hopelessness of our time. And here's why. 
Because this gate, the same east gate that the Bible says is the gate in which Jesus will enter in during his second coming. Ezekiel writes about this east gate in a vision he had in Ezekiel 43, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this. It says, Afterwards he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now, Jesus is going to turn, come through that east gate. Now, it's an interesting fact. In 1100 AD, when the Turks heard that the east gate was the gate Jesus would enter, they walled it up and they sealed it and, and, and sealed it shut. But in so doing, they actually inadvertently fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 44, which goes on to say that the east gate shall be sealed until Jesus returns, until he returns. I love it. No wonder it's been called the gate of hope. Finally, there's the Mithcad gate, also called the inspection gate. Look at verse 31. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and the merchants in front of the Mithcad gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. Now, Mithcad literally means judgment. So when Jesus comes back, he'll bring judgment with him. Now, as believers, we understand you know, will be judged as the Bema seat of Christ, not for our sins because they were already judged at the cross of Christ, but for what will be judged for what service we've done for Him. Unbelievers, however, will appear before the great white throne judgment and will be cast into eternal damnation. And then, then this takes us right back to where we started with the sheep gate. Look at verse 32. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmith and the merchants made repairs. And so you see the whole circle that we have going from gate to gate. And again, the sheep gate signifies the Lamb of God whose blood was shed on the cross for us. You see, the cross must be at the beginning and the end of every life. Every life. Start with the cross, we end with the cross, we look to the cross. And whatever gates need to be repaired in our lives, we ask the Lord, we seek the Lord, Lord, do that work in my life. Repair that area in my life that needs to be repaired. Now we come to chapter 4. That's why I told you if we get to chapter 4, you're going to go, oh no, you know, how much longer do we have? Chapter 4, Nehemiah must deal with opposition and discouragement. Two things that could stop any work of God if you're not prepared for it. Because whenever a person steps into uh, the arena of leadership, especially in ministry, they need to know that they're going to face opposition. They need to know that they're going to face discouragement. Because there are always are going to be people that are going to want to throw you to the lions. There are always going to be people that are going to want to see you, you fail and fall. So Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem was a threat to, we'll see, a man named Sambalot and his associates who wanted to keep the, the Jews weak, wanted to keep you know, them dependent upon, upon them. And, and so because a, a strong Jerusalem would mean a, a whole shift in power in the region, they didn't want that. And it, was also, it would also rob Sambalot and his friends from the wealth they were making off of Jerusalem's state of disrepair. See, Nehemiah, we know they're making progress. The wall is going up. Things are going well. Let me tell you, when things start to go well, get ready for trouble. Because the enemy does not want the work of the Lord to make progress in our lives. See, as long as these people in Jerusalem, they were content with their sad situation, the walls were crumbled down, and they just, you know, they were just... Living day to day, and uh, you know, devil left them alone. Enemies left them alone. But as soon as the Jews began to serve the Lord and bring glory to God's name, man, that enemy became active all over again. Now, 
That doesn't mean that God doesn't use opposition. Oftentimes, opposition is evidence that God is blessing. It's been said, Satan is never too busy to rock the cradle of a sleeping Christian. But when you're awake, and you're living for Christ, and and ministry is happening, expect opposition. Again, opposition is evidence that, that God is blessing. But let me tell you this, that's also an opportunity to grow because the difficulties that came to the work of the wall brought out the best in these people that Nehemiah was leading. See, Satan wanted to use these problems as weapons to destroy the work, but we see God is going to use them as tools to build up his people. Now with that, let's let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. We read, But so it happened when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. That word indignant, means to express indignation in speech, denounce, and to curse. I mean, he's, he's cursing at him. They're denouncing him. Now, it's not unusual for the enemy to insult the servants of God. I mean, to think of, of David and Goliath, you know. Just a shepherd boy walks up to that giant man, and he just starts, you know, mocking him. And, and are you bringing this, you know, this person before me? And, and uh, Goliath ridiculed David, uh, you know, Hebrews chapter 11. Some of the heroes of the faith we know had to endure mocking, ridicule, scorn. Jesus himself was mocked by the soldiers during his trial and by the crowd as he hung there on the cross. See, again, if the enemy is laughing at what God's people are doing, if they're mocking, it's usually a sign that God is going to bless his people in a wonderful way. I like what Psalm 2 verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. You see, the real theme of these next few chapters, chapters 4 through 6, it's spiritual warfare. God wants us to accomplish His will in your life and to fulfill His plan for your life, but Satan hates you, and he wants to destroy both the plans and the purposes of your life. But don't let this scare you. God is greater than Satan's hatred, and God's commitment to you is greater than Satan's schemes. Well, here comes the attack. Look at verse 2. Sambalot heard the Jews were building the wall. He's indignant. So he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now to buy the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, even if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. What a slime ball. <laughs> what a mockery. I mean, to buy the Ammonite's comments is just as sarcastic as it can be. He laughed at them. Oh, a fox would cause the wall to tumble. But you know what? It's not going anywhere. Why? Because it's God's wall. God wants the wall built. Nehemiah may be the, the, the builder, but God is, God is the contractor, so to speak. God, God is the source that motivates the building of the wall. He, and so it's, it's going to get built. Sambalot, Tobiah, and we'll see Geshem, uh, seems to, to be the three people who spearheaded this opposition. Remember chapter 2, verse 10, we saw these guys first, uh, you know, introduced to us, and they were pretty upset that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Jews. Now they're just, now they're just plain irritated. And so Sambalot makes this really anti-Semitic speech to buy and make the joke about the Jews. And they're tempt- attempting to intimidate and incriminate and eventually even assassinate Nehemiah, but they would not succeed. The wall's going to be built. Listen, in the same way, the world does its best to intimidate and to incriminate and eventually even assassinate Christianity. Get it off the face of the planet. But they won't succeed. 
They won't succeed. Our lives will be complete. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 6 that, that we can be confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's God working in us and through our lives. But notice how Nehemiah answers back with these false accusers, these mockers. Look at verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as a plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they provoked you to anger before the builders. Now, this is great. I mean, as soon as Nehemiah hears all this mocking and all this stuff going on, he doesn't get his feathers all ruffled up and say, oh yeah, and start answering back. First thing he does is pray. He prays. Now, this prayer was a prayer of vengeance. God, get him. It was a prayer, if you might say, uh, J. Vernamiki calls it, still under the law. See, under the law, the Jews had a perfect right to ask for justice. They were, at to, they were correct to ask that a righteous judgment be made. Now, that hasn't changed. God still intends to bring justice. However, Jesus reversed it for those of us who are believers today. See, today, we're not told to pray for revenge. Rather, we're told in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God as Christ forgave you. We're told this in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, there are certain matters that we just need to turn over to the Lord. Let the Lord handle them. Because I think if we attempt to handle them, it usually means we're going to make, make a mess of things. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not to let people just walk all over us and do as much damage as they please. It's quite evident from Scripture that there are certain things that we are to take care of. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and doctrine, Second Timothy 4.2. I mean, reprove and rebuke, these are strong words. It's not the same as revenge. See, there are times when, when rebuke should be delivered. There, there's times when someone should be reproved. But we do it not for justice sake, but for reconciliation, that the person who is not right with God would become reconciled with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, under the law, people could pray that justice be brought to pass upon their enemies. Under grace, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those that, that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Matthew 5.44 See, our first line of defense against opposition, against those that would cause to, to, to you know, break the work that we're doing as the body of Christ, is prayer. We're never more effective against our enemies and the enemies of God than when we are on our knees. It's been said, the saint who advances on his knees never need retreat because prayer provides an invincible shield. I like that. You know, people can get mad at you for sharing your faith with them. They can get indignant towards you in, in your stance against abortion or your stance on the sanctity of marriage. Hey, they can even harm you physically. But none of those things can or should stop you from praying for that person. It's an amazing thing what happens to a person who is told, when you told them that, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. Maybe you've even had someone yelling at you over your relationship with Jesus Christ. But then you just gave them this quiet answer and told them, hey, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. You know, all of a sudden, man, their countenance changes. I mean, you're going to pray for me? See, Nehemiah, before he ever said a word to the critic, he talked to God. He refused to retaliate, even though that would seem the most natural thing to do. Now, again, he retaliated in his prayer, but, but not to the person. 
Someone as well said, the worst thing a person can do is fight every critic one by one. And said, Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah persisted. Look at verse 6. We read, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I like that. Chuck Swindoll, in his famous commentary on this book, Hand Me Another Brick, he wrote this, I can just feel it. Keep mixing the mortar and hand me another brick. Critics demoralized, leaders encouraged. When the critics spoke, the workmen heard them and were demoralized. But when the capable leader stepped up and said, let's look at it God's way, state the job, the crew members were back in there with those trowels and wheelbarrows putting together the stone and the mortar, the gates and the hinges. I like that. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah said, man, come on, we can do this. Let's go, man, we prayed. Don't, doesn't matter what they said. Let's keep going here. And they said, man, we're going to do it. They had a mind to work. See, the critic, the opposer, Satan himself wants nothing better than the work in your life to slow down and, and then to cease. And he knows that the easiest thing the Christian can do when criticized or opposed is to give up. That's why so many of the attacks that come towards us and at us are that of discouragement. And despair, oh man, why even try? It's not going to work, you know, and, and you get attacked that, that way. But that is when we need to all the more turn to prayer and look to Jesus who is our hope in this life and get back to having that, that mind to work. See, Nehemiah and the people prayed and they persisted. And maybe the, the hardest thing to do is to pray and then persist, but that's what we need to do if we want to succeed. So what happened next when the people prayed and persisted? Well, everyone lived happily ever after. No. <laughs> the opposition and the criticism grew. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to close, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And so the enemies here, they're seeing this wall it's starting to come together. You know, we have a house that's going in across the street from us, and I love to just watch out the window and see how it just gets built. Oh, man, there's the foundation. Man, now they got the, man, they're putting the wood up. Man, that's the house. And they close it, man. It's enjoy. You see the progress of that. Well, these enemies, they're seeing the progress of this wall. It's all, they're all linked together now. There's no more gaps in there. They're all coming. It's halfway high, but it's all linked together. And, and, and so, you know, they don't like that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed and, and persisted and the criticism and the opposition grew? Well, that's what we see for Nehemiah. See, there are times when the critics and the opposition, they just won't lie down. They just won't go away. But here we read that they, they expanded their troops. The criticism began more intense and they conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion, verse 8 says. That's always the, the attack of the enemy. Bring confusion. Well, what's going on? Bring confusion. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So what's the solution? Well, it is what it's always been. It's to battle in prayer. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. Love that. I mean, they didn't go out to, to defeat them, to fight them. They stayed to the task what they were doing. They, they not only prayed, but he did something practical. He set up a guard. I mean, the prayer was not used in place of responsible actions. Nor should prayer ever be used in place of responsible actions. God expects us to act 
responsibly. You know, some people use prayer for, as an excuse for laziness. You know, well, you know, I'm just praying about getting a job, and, and you know, I, I'm just, yeah, well, have you gone out and looked for a job? Well, no, I'm just praying about it. I'm praying about it. Well, you know, get up. Go look for a job. Nehemiah says we've made our prayer to God, and we set a watch against them day and night. See, God does expect us to do what is wise and what is practical, though all the while we're still trusting in Him. See, we know that Psalm 127, verse 1, the end of that says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But listen, the watchman, he still, I mean, he still wakes up and he's still watching. Yeah, yeah, we don't say, Lord, watch the city and then everybody goes to sleep. No, the watchman is still there. Yes, we need to realize that it's absolutely necessary that God watch the city, but we also realize it's necessary that we take the actions that are required of us as well. And if someone's breaking into your house and wants to kill you, you're to trust God to save you, but you're also trusting God that you can find your gun and it's loaded. So defend yourself. Do you want a home safe? Yeah, pray, you bet. But for sure, lock your front door if you want your home safe. I mean, it's foolish to pray that your home not be robbed and then you leave the front door wide open and go away for a week. Now, we pray, Lord, provide for us the best candidate to do the job that would represent your word and your, and your principles. But you don't go out and vote? Man, we need to vote. You know, you see, there's God's part and there's our part. Nehemiah says, we made our prayer to our God and we set a watch against them day and night. I've said this before. I know it. But never before has an election been ever so more important than it is for us right now. I mean, this one election, it could confirm the downward path our country is heading as it turns its back on God even further and further. Or we may get a reprieve. You know, we don't know. That's why all the more we need to be praying we need to be persistent in our prayers. We need to do all that we can to build up the body of Christ, to encourage one another, again, to repair any broken gates that need repair in our life. We're going to stop here tonight, like I said, because the remaining 13 verses, there's so much there, and it would just take us too long. But, but again, you know, I just see the attacks come, the attacks come, Nehemiah turns to prayer. He turns to prayer. He does what's responsible. I mean, it isn't just, okay, we're just going to pray and not do anything. He turns to prayer and then he acts. Same thing for us. But let's pray. But man, we, we defend. We do what we need to do, what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight. Lord, thank you for your word, the examples that were given through your servant Nehemiah. And Lord, I praise you, praise you Lord, for, for this church and the servants that you've raised up here and this body of believers. Lord, I could not do the work here as a pastor, as a leader, Lord, without the people here that, that you've brought together to do the work that you've called them to do. But Lord, as we've joined together as a body of believers, Lord, it's your work that's getting done. You are our shepherd. And we're just a sheep following after you, Lord. Help us to be aware, Lord, of the things that you want repaired in our lives. Those areas in our own lives personally, Lord, that, that we need to work on. Help us to be aware of those. You know, take care of our homes, Lord. They, they built, you know, the walls right by their homes, Lord. We need to take care of our homes. Make sure the walls are stirred in our homes, walls of protection, that we're raising our families in your ways, Lord, that we're standing up for Christian principles in our home. And then, Lord, we want to stand up against the opposition, Lord, and we do that through prayer. Prayer and persistence, Lord. We do pray for our country, Lord. We pray, Lord, that there'd be a turning away from the wickedness and that would be turning towards you. Lord, we pray that, that uh, this election would bring about those that would bring about godly change into our country. Principles, godly principles, Lord. 
not necessarily a godly candidate, Lord. I don't see too many of them out there, Lord. But, but, but someone that would bring about godly principles in our society today. So, Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your grace and love and mercy. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand with the one last.